Uh, our passage on which the sermon is based is Acts chapter 9. Um, there's a great line from the Dr. Seuss book, Green Eggs and Ham. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. But Sam I am is not deterred very easily, <laughs> if you recall. Uh, he asked the character, the, the guy, I don't know, what do you call that? Uh, is it a man, maybe? Uh, in any case, he asked him if he would eat green eggs and ham in various locations. He asked him repeatedly, would you eat it in a, bo- in a house, in a box, in a car, in a tree? with a few different characters, uh, different animals, you know, with, with a mouse, with a fox, with a goat. And still the man refuses to try them until finally, after you know, the, the hundredth time, he, he just breaks down and he takes a bite and he discovers, wow, I actually, I actually like this. John said, uh, when he saw that this was the opening illustration of the sermon today, he said that, uh, that you're, you're reading this book like four or five times a week right now. <laughs> With your, with your little one. Uh, we, we've all, though, experienced green eggs and ham moments, haven't we? When we changed our mind on things, um, s- some things were quite insignificant, and the foods we disliked and then we liked, or maybe people we disliked and then we liked. Um, on some occasions, on things a, a little more significant, like changing from, going from PC to Mac. I threw that one in there because, you know, Dave Bennett is such a Mac, uh, you know, conversion artist, and then he doesn't even, doesn't make it today, but, and then, you know, there's, there's a few occasions in life where we change our minds on very big life-altering issues, and it's what philosophers refer to as a paradigm shift. We just go, you know, a complete 180 paradigm shift. Christianity swept through the, the Roman Empire in its day, because the early Christians realized they weren't signing up simply for a new cause or, or joining a new group. They were experiencing like the most profound green eggs and ham shift that could ever happen to a human being. The, the complete 180 that takes place when they decide to become disciples of Jesus Christ. They're converted. They die to one way of life and are converted to a brand new way of life. And there's no greater illustration of this than uh, the, the famous passage we have today, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. It's an incredible story, in no small part, because he basically has a head-on collision with Jesus on the road. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, two trains hitting each other, one train and a small car maybe hitting each other. Um, definitely not a, a gentle Jesus, meek and mild kind of conversion, as we're going to see, but it probably... Even if you're a secular person, a secular historian, you have to admit that this event, his conversion, changes the world as we know it. It absolutely changes the world as we know it. So let's read verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 9 and 17 through 19. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to be to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and go into, and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him in Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And then skipping ahead to verse 17, after God calls Ananias to come to Saul. So Ananias, this Christian, departed and he entered the house. And laying his hands on, on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to, to you on the road by which you, have, uh, you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Uh, let's pray again. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible event that took place some 2,000 years ago. And we pray that in the conversion of Saul, we would have maybe some of our cynicism beaten away and, and would begin to believe again that if you can convert Saul, you can convert anybody, including us. This we ask uh, you to do in the name of Jesus. Amen. So um, Saul, yeah, he studied under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. He was probably one of the most religiously pedigreed, sophisticated men of his day. Uh, if you've read his letters in the New Testament, you know that he was basically a genius, a super genius. Uh, the part of Judaism he belonged to, the sect of the Pharisees, they had broken down the Old Testament in some 600 laws and he genuinely believed that he had kept all 600 faithfully. I mean, he was as devout as they come, as zealous as they come. He was an absolute fanatic. As you read the story of Acts, you know, he's a fanatic, a murderous fanatic. If you were at chapters earlier, he helped murder Stephen. He's on a road, I mean, on this long journey by foot to go all the way up to Damascus. So 135 miles from Jerusalem, Damascus on foot so that he could arrest more Christians. I mean, he just absolutely hated the early Christian movement and thought it was basically the spawn of the devil. Now, the, what's interesting, when you read through the book of Acts, you realize that the Holy Spirit wants us to hear this story because he tells it three times. This is the first of three instances it gets repeated and um, uh, so the, it's definitely telling us that by that emphasis, this is really important. But one of the fa interesting features of the retelling later on are these initial words that Jesus say, tells, uh, says to Paul, um, Saul on the road. He says, basically, Saul, Saul, by persecuting these Christians, you are, and he uses a strange phrase, you are kicking against the goads. Number one, that's where I want to start, the goads. What in the world is a goad, right? I, we don't use that language nowadays. I wouldn't know what a goad was unless I looked it up. So apparently, a goad was a shepherd's tool. Uh, thank you, John. <laughs> uh, a shepherd's tool that uh, it was a pointed stick, sometimes with metal on the end. The shepherd would use it to basically prod the sheep to, you know, to steer them from to safety, you know, to steer them away from danger, to keep them from, you know, stepping off the edge of a cliff or drowning in a muddy bog. Uh, the shepherd's goad would produce an ouch in the side of a sheep. And, and that ouch was the shepherd's way of saying, you know, go north or be eaten. You know, go this way or fall prey to the wolves, right? A goad is what steered them away from threats, away from wolves, away from predators and towards health and life. Saul, Jesus says, every time you persecute these Christians, you're kicking against the goads. What, what is Jesus saying there? 
It's like every time Paul would lash out against the early church, it would be his bare foot. They would you know, go up against the point. <laughs> Ouch! He'd feel it. Look, what Jesus is suggesting, I think, is that Saul's conscience was already activated before the road to Damascus. I mean, he, he felt it in his conscience. I thought this was also really interesting. So the founder of analytical psychology, Carl Jung, Jung uh, writes... Uh, he does a little bit, not a treatise, but he, he writes a bit about the conversion of Saul because it's so important. And he says that basically that the conversion of Saul as a fanatic, that this, his kind of murderous fanaticism is only found in people who are compensating because of secret doubts that they have. Does that make sense? Like secret doubts inside or insecurities that will then manifest themselves in a fierce assertion of you know, your own righteousness a combative criticism, a murderous criticism of those you disagree with. I guess what I'm trying to get at is we think about the conversion of Saul on the road as being a sudden event, and it was, but why do you kick against the goad suggests that it also wasn't. God had secretly been at work on this guy for quite a while. Jesus had already secretly had been doing things on the inside. I came across these words online, which reminded me um, something a pastor told me years ago. He said, basically, like, you never know what's going on inside a person. And so you should always just assume that the other person's heart, heart is breaking because, like, normally it is. Normally pain is such in our lives that we mask it really well, but, but our hearts are regularly breaking. And here's what I came across. I can't stress this enough. Like, you have no idea what other people carry with them every day. You have no idea what someone's life is like. So don't create more pain and stress to others. Be kind. Now they're saying this on Twitter, which is definitely not a, a, a spot for kindness. But that's true, right? You have no idea what other people carry with them every day. And by that same token, you have no idea the internal dialogue that may be going on in the side, inside of another human being. You know, we make assumptions all the time about other people, like, oh, they wouldn't be interested in talking about faith. Oh, we could never have a conversation about ultimate things. Oh, I won't invite them to church because they would, they're just going to say no. Like, but, you, you know, you just can't read other people's minds. You can't read other people's hearts. People are far more complex than we give them credit. I mean, if you looked at Paul from the outside, you'd say, there's no way. There's no way this guy would ever come to Jesus, you know, but God is secretly internally working on all kinds of people. And maybe one of the things we learn from Saul is maybe sometimes the people who are most resistant to faith are actually the closest to undergoing a paradigm shift. That's what even, I think, Young would say. You know, I do think that we have a, uh, a cynicism about conversion, a lack of any confidence that people will change and <laughs> make a, a massive change of faith. If, if you resonate with that, just remember all the significant ways that you've changed over the years. I, I look back on myself, my younger self, and just, oh, there's so many times that I was just adamant about something, and now I would say I was just adamantly wrong. <laughs> you know, there were times when I just was so theologically inflexible, um, theologically convinced that I was right, and and now I've changed. And, or I look back on my parenting styles, you know, some, some of the like, very, I was way too tough on my early kids. And, 
and we were way too inflexible. And, and you know what? Behind those changes, those green eggs and ham paradigm shifts, there was a shepherd who was goading me, a shepherd who was prodding me to, to go, you know, not that way, but this way. And surely you have stories like that too, right? He, he can do that with anyone if he's already done it with us. And it's certainly if he's done it with Saul. So that's number one, the goats. Number two, I alluded to this earlier, but it is a collision on the road to Damascus. So here, I want to do an experiment with you. We'll call this experiment time. Take both of your hands and cover your eyes and like hold them really tight to your face. And I, what I want to ask you at this moment is, how dark is that? Keep your hands there. Now, it might not be too terribly dark because you have the flashers going on right now, but wait for the flashers to diminish. How dark is it with your hands over your eyes? Okay, I want you to open your eyes and imagine that the world right now with your eyes open was every bit as dark because that's what happened to him. Every bit as dark as the darkest cave where you can't see the hand right in front of your face. You know, we live, um, most of you have been to our house, on the right by the major intersection of Pima and Indian School. And from time to time, we'll be outside, and we'll sadly hear all the sound, you know, a crash, a crash right? And, and there's glass cracking, and there's metal, metal crumpling, and, you know, there's just boom, um, a terrible sound. And, you know, whenever I hear that, I, I hope someone isn't injured or someone hasn't died. But in the case of Saul, when he goes boom with Jesus, what Luke is trying to tell us is that Saul dies. So one of the themes that is going on here is this death and resurrection motif. He goes into the darkness of the grave for three days. Did you notice? It was three days. Three days, he can't see. For three days, he's in the, the belly of Sheol, if you remember that sermon. For three days, he, uh, he, he's, uh, he's, he doesn't eat. He's basically dead to the world for three days until Ananias comes and he lays hands on him and the scales fall from his eyes and it's light again and it's baptism and it's, I'm alive, I can see. The other thing that really stands out about the passage is what ends up blinding him is not a darkness, but it's a light. It's, the gl- it's glory. It's a glory light. It's, you know, the glory of Yahweh that we see in the Old Testament, the holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The glory light of Yahweh becomes the glory light of Jesus. And it's the glory of Jesus on the road to Damascus that sends him into the grave and the kindness of Jesus that, you know, yanks him out. That's what's going on. So I think there's a death and resurrection sequence here following the collision, a a dying, a rebirth. I think one of the things that this tells me is that we just need to remember that for many people, um, conversion is something like a death for them, Um, especially for those people who don't grow up in maybe a healthy Christian home or don't grow up in a healthy Christian community. Like, when they talk about their own conversion, it's a traumatic experience. Like, we, it's trauma. We, we sing about the sweetness of the Christian life, but uh, to get to that sweetness, you first have to undergo, like, a significant traumatic death. I was reading one author who put it this way, when she was speaking about her um, conversion. She said, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. 
No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who profess the name, that is the name of Jesus, commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. She continues, stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. Conversion was a train wreck. Um, It was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, and I fought with everything that I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the costs, and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. Whew! (laughs) That's real honesty. The reason you know that author came to faith in Jesus, though, is she met a couple of Christians. In this case, it was actually a positive pastor story. It was a pastor and his wife who took an interest in her and would invite them over, and they would share meals together and talk and just spend a lot of time. It was basically she met some Christians that truly embodied the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. So we need to do two things. When we pray for the conversion of our friends, we need to, uh, number one, recognize that we are asking for a certain level of chaos to envelop their lives. And number two, we are asking uh, God to make himself unmistakably known and clear. And, and, and so I'll pray, I'll pray like for God to show himself to them in visions, in dreams, by miracles, and I'll pray that he just show him, uh, himself through the miracle of actual Christians who embody the kingdom. <laughs> and that is a miracle, isn't it? You're right? And so that's what we need to be doing is both re- remembering the enormous cost it is for some people and praying that, that Jesus would be manifest to them. And I, I would be remiss if I just didn't say that maybe for you, you're here today and you realize it would be traumatic for you, absolutely traumatic for you, to turn a 180 and to begin to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, It it requires a tremendous amount of nerve to buy into the walk of new life in him. Um, Ultimately, the reason I think you should do it is because, well, because there's new life on the other side. There's death and there's rebirth. And number three kind of gets on, it gets to this. There's union and new identity. So we'll set the story again. Paul is, you know, Flat on his back, on the road, the glory of Jesus has knocked the wind out of him. Um, He's panting, he's out of breath, so to speak. Notice the words that he hears. It's not Saul, 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 why are you persecuting them? It's Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Like, Christ is speaking to him about the deepest connection that he has with his people. He says, I am united with them. I I am in them, and and they are together with me. And what is basically, what ends up being the the doctrine of union with Christ. Paul, of all the theologians in the world, he would be the one who would explore, he'd spend his whole life unpacking and exploring the doctrine of union with Christ in his writings. He does that more than any of the other apostles, any other pastor, any other writer. He's the one who explores to the question, who am I? The answer, I am someone who is tethered to the second person of the Trinity, to God, to God the Son. And that changes everything. Uh, one of the ways things that changes is um, our identity. 
You know, we, we live in a culture that our cultural stories focus on the search for identity. Ralph Ellison, the author of the classic novel Invisible Man, he was once asked a question, uh, would you say that the search for identity is primarily an American theme? And he answered, it is the American theme. And it's in our cultural stories all the time. Luke Skywalker, he doesn't really know who he is until you know, he's hanging um, on Cloud City and, you know, Luke, I'm your father. Princess Elsa, she's terrified that people will discover who she really is. Jay Gatsby in The Great Gatsby, he says, like, quote, I don't want you to think I was just some nobody, end quote. Rocky Balboa, quote, all I want to do is go the distance so that I'll know I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood, end quote. Like, we're all trying to search for an identity. When in reality, the doctrine of union in Christ says, you're given an identity, and it's this identity. Um, this is what I try to reinforce to my kids. Like, what I want to say to my children at the end of the day is, you're not your ACT score, you're not your GPA, you're not your, um, you're, you're not your scoring average, you're not your batting average, you're not, you're not the, the beauty uh, that's looking at you in the mirror. You, you are gods because you are tethered to Jesus. Like the Father says to our children, says to our spouses, says to our friends, just as the Son is mine, you are mine in the Son. Like you belong to me and, and are precious to me because you are in the Son. Like your name is written on the palm of, of my hand. Like you are personally deeply known by God and loved by God. So much so that he says, that I have loved you before the creation of the world, and I have chosen you even before the foundation of the world was laid. I chose you to give you my love, and my love is a just because I love you love. It's not because of anything you do or anything you merit. It's, it's just because I love you and you're my son. It's not because you've done anything good or bad or choices you have made, and therefore, it's not based on your consistency or inconsistency. It does not fluctuate. I love you forever because you are forever tethered to the sun. And nothing can ever separate you from that love. And that is a strong identity. Like That is a received identity and that is a strong identity. I think a really good exercise for us to do when we are feeling low and just terrible about ourselves is... Uh, it's just to ask a friend, a Christian friend, to, to please, will you do this favor for me? Will you tell me who I am in Christ? Because I don't feel, I feel horrible right now, but would you just tell me who I am in Jesus? And let them speak to you. And I guarantee you, it, it'll make such a difference. Because your identity is who you are, united to the sun. In him, you were truly beautiful and spotless in God's sight. And in Zephaniah 3.17, it says that the Lord delights over you with singing, that that is what makes, um, makes you so special, and it's what gives your life ballast. The moment that Saul is physically blind is the moment that he begins to see the most beautiful truth of union with Christ. And he has three days to think about it that turns into a lifetime. Number four, the passage is full of grace, and I should say fourth and finally, grace. So Ananias is called to go to the house of Saul, 
uh, where Saul's staying, rather. And that had to be a frightening you know, ministry a- episode. Of all the ministry gigs, you don't want to have to be Ananias, you know, going to Saul the murderer's house. In fact, he was really scared. If we go back and read it in verse 10, I'll read through 10, from 10 to 16. Uh, these words, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. And he answered, yes, Lord. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, from, uh, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Ephnas, the Gentiles, and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And the Lord told him, go, uh, let's see here, oh, I lost my place. And I will show him how much he needs to suffer in my name. Ananias is terrified to go. You can tell. He's absolutely, absolutely terrified. He walks into the room. What are the first words that Ananias says to him? <laughs> brother, brother Saul. Not Saul the murderer, not Saul the persecutor. Like, that is the power of the gospel, right? The the power to reconcile persecutors with those who they persecute. To welcome, like, murderers into the family. Like, that is the power of the gospel. That is beautiful. That is is the beauty of the early Christian community, and that's full of grace. Do you know how Paul um, ends up dying later on? He's beheaded by the emperor Nero. Nero... It was famous for the way that he would persecute Christians. He would take the carcasses of Christians and he would light them on fire as human torches in his garden. He would send them into the Colosseum and there they would be you know, participants in the gladiatorial games and they would be eaten by the lions. Uh, you know, Paul was beheaded under Emperor Nero. And then what happens next? Paul enters into heaven to the cheers of those he martyred, because that's how the gospel works. (laughs) That's how the gospel works. What I'm really talking about is a reconciled family, both on, uh, in heaven and on earth, that friends are made out of enemies in the family of grace. And, and that's really um, what we have set out to try and do, naming our church Reconciled Church of South Scottsdale, is to try and make this a place of reconciled Persons from you know, different cultural backgrounds, every ethnicity, political persuasions, uh, philosophical persuasions, etc. That, that this would be a place where grace is extended, that it brings us all in. Um, and basically what the rest of the book of Acts is going to show us is simply this, that if you save this Pharisee, then you end up saving the world. Like God's grace was so powerfully at work in Paul that if his grace would save Paul, that same grace would run through Paul into the world. Like, I know that Paul was a hard personality to get along with, and from time to time you hear Christians talk about, 
like, ah, uh, I have a hard time with Paul. <laughs> when I read Paul, he's kind of hard for me to understand, or especially, I don't like half the things that Paul says, and we feel a little uncomfortable with that. Um, Paul has a way of rubbing us the wrong way, but I tell you what, if it weren't for God's grace working through Paul, the world would not be the way that it is today. Like, if, if it is Paul who brought us the world that we take for granted. It is because of Paul we eat the food that we eat. Not kosher food, but all kinds of food. Um, it is because of Paul that we don't have to become Jews in order to become Christians. Like It changes the way that we relate to everyone in, in every society. Um, it is because of Paul that we, we believe that what we believe about God's grace and his love and his union with Christ. It's because of Paul, you know, we... Um, you know, because of his missionary journeys that ultimately people like us, Gentiles who are far away, end up becoming Christians. Jesus saves the world, but he ends up doing it through this guy, through this difficult guy, this guy who, you know, might be hard to go out and have a beer with in conversation because he's, he's so intense. And I just think that's such a powerful illustration of grace. Just another example of the surprising contours of grace. So in conclusion, um, number one, we do have a Jesus who is a good shepherd and is goading people in a certain way, even when we don't know it. Um, assume that. Number two, that we have a God of such glory that when he appears to someone, he can really knock them off their feet. And that that can be a very traumatic experience. It can be like a death followed by a resurrection. Um, number three, we have a new identity in Christ. We are precious because we are tethered to the Son, and that changes everything. And then finally, it's a story of grace, a reconciled uh, community where enemies become friends. And, uh, and it all began on this road when he knocked the feet off of this Pharisee and the glory of the risen Jesus appeared to him. It's the ultimate green eggs, green eggs and ham moment, and it's the thing that you know, we pray for it to happen once again today. Amen.